Thanks for joining us for the 2018 7th Annual Stroke Conference, The Pulse of Stroke Rehabilitation. This conference is sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. In this podcast lecture, Ariel Resnick presented Emerging Technologies in Stroke Rehabilitation. Ariel is a clinical specialist and residency program coordinator at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, November 1st, 2018 at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Saddlebrook Campus, 300 Market Street, Saddlebrook, New Jersey. For more information about Kessler Foundation Research or Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, click on the links within the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. All right, so some of the things uh, we're going to talk about today, I wanted to start with sort of a brief review, overview of the concepts of neuroplasticity, because that's really in inpatient rehab what we're trying to target and harness is the ability to cause structural changes in the brain that ultimately affect function. I want to talk a little bit about how we define different types of recovery, as well as how we can use technology as an adjunct, not a substitution for traditional rehab. And then I'll kind of go into the feasibility of use for some of the things that we're currently using and some of the newer tech things that are kind of on the horizon, talking about some high-tech options as well as some low-tech options that would be something that a patient could really take home with them. And then lastly, just kind of discuss quickly the uh, role of the healthcare professional in health promotion and wellness, um, because rehab doesn't stop when a patient leaves rehab. Um, we need to really make sure that we're sort of instilling in our patients that they had an injury, they rehabbed from their injury, but that a lifelong dedication to exercise and physical activity is gonna be really important for them going forward for the rest of their lives. So what is neuroplasticity? Essentially, the, the definition that you'll find pretty much on any website is the central nervous system's ability to adapt and modify its own organization and function. And what's really interesting about neuroplasticity is that it really wasn't until the last few decades that we realized that this was possible in the central nervous system. We've known for a long time that peripheral nerves could sort of regenerate, but it was you, the theory previously was that once there was damage to the brain, there was no way to repair it. And while at a cellular level that may still be true, we are seeing that functional and structural reorganization is possible. Um, so in a broad sense, plasticity is really what underlies all learning, and that starts from a fetus all the way up to an adult. So we know that obviously when a child's born, they have millions and millions of neural connections, some that they need, some that they don't need. And so they start to prune back as they get older. And what we've discovered is that plasticity is experience dependent. So depending on what you are exposed to, what you practice, you get good at things, and usually it's at the sacrifice of being not so good at other things. So you really can sort of hone in on the specificity in order to get good at things that you wanna get good at. Um, when it, what it really comes down to is that in order to remodel the nervous system, you have to practice. And practice is really an intensive thing. There are many researchers that have looked at plasticity, um, but particularly experience-dependent plasticity um, Kleiman Jones in 2008 came up with this really beautiful list of 10 principles that you really need to focus on in order to promote plasticity, particularly after an injury. The four that I think technology really hones in on is specificity, repetition, intensity, and salience. And I'll talk a little bit more about them later, but specificity is really looking at 
if you want to get better at a specific task, you have to practice that specific task. We've seen that it's not always effective just to practice parts of the task, that there is not always a transfer to that whole task um, if you don't do it from start to finish. Repetition is another key one, so you can't just practice it one or two times. You really need thousands and thousands of repetitions. Intensity kind of comes into play with repetition as well, but intensity really also looks at challenging both the cardiovascular and the neuromuscular system sufficiently. And then salience is really a big one. Um, basically, we can only tolerate intensive repetitive practice of things that we're interested in. So what can we be doing as therapists to keep our patients motivated and interested in the tasks at hand? Because a lot of times what we're asking them to do is either stuff that they didn't enjoy doing beforehand, stuff that they didn't used to think about or didn't have to think about doing beforehand, um, things that are now really, really hard for them. So when you look all the way back at like the animal studies where neuroplasticity research really started, basically they would offer a food reward to the animal for doing this task over and over and over again and that was their way of targeting that salience. So it may have been a task that the animal didn't particularly enjoy doing, but they knew that after every single repetition they would get some sort of food. So they continued to participate in that task. I think it's really important to sort of operationally define what goes on in rehab. And this kind of summary article um, that came out in 2009 and then was sort of resummarized in 2013 really looks at three definitions for what goes on after a neurological injury. The first, and really the optimal, what we're trying to target is functional recovery. And on a basic definition level, that is reacquisition of elemental motor patterns present prior to a CNS injury. So if, for example, I had a neurological injury that affected the left side of my body, I'm left-handed. I do everything with my left hand. Functional recovery for me would look like being able to do everything that I did before in the same way I did it before with my left hand. Compensation is adapting new motor patterns um, or the appearance of new motor patterns from the adaptation of remaining motor elements. So again, injury to the left side of my body, I'm left-handed, I still wanna try to use my left hand for things, but I'm gonna be doing this very differently. So maybe I've lost function in two of my fingers but I have function in my other three fingers. So while I used to open a jar like this, now I open it like this. Still using my left hand, just in a different way. Substitution, which is the most common thing that happens after a neurological injury, is integrating alternative motor elements. And scientifically, they call it different end effectors, but essentially if it's something that you would do with your hand, you're either doing it with your other hand or you're doing it with a different part of your body. So the example that I always give here is, if I used to open a bag of chips like this, now I hold it in my right hand and use my teeth. So I've completely taken my left hand out of the equation completely. So what's happening here in rehab and in sort of our current healthcare climate? Patients are coming into acute rehab sicker because they have shorter lengths of stay in acute care. And then they're also being discharged from rehab quicker. So this lovely little sicker and quicker um, rhyme has been sort of rolling around our heads for a while now. So how do we respond to that? We have to make them functional as quickly as possible. We need to decrease their burden of care on their caregivers, and we have to maximize their independence. So what we're doing in that process is teaching compensatory and substitution strategies in order to get them independent as quickly as possible. Really, the challenge with that is you're giving them an out. So they're not using their injured body part at all because we're saying, well, we need you to dress yourself, so just use your other hand. Um, 
when they're not using the injured body part, they get this learned non-use very quickly because they're like, okay, well, I can dress myself again. But how are you dressing yourself? You're not using any of the same patterns, techniques that you used to use before. So it might be more efficient in the long run. We're not really doing them a service at all. So enter technology. Why are you all here? <laughs> using technology, it's important that as a healthcare team, we really recognize that technology is only meant to be adjunctive to therapy. It's not meant to be a substitution. I talk about technology a lot, and when I lecture students on it, they're like, okay, well, I'm in school to be a PT, so you're saying I don't need to use my hands anymore. I can just slap them in this piece of technology and walk away and I'm done. Why am I here? And that's really not the case. So if you think about the things that we do in traditional therapy, we use our hands to facilitate muscles. We use our hands, our verbal cues to correct posture. We do balance training. We give different strategies and we educate patients and caregivers. None of that goes away when you add technology into the mix. But what technology does is help us to better target the underlying, the underlying impairments that are barriers to independence. We can use technology to reduce the need for manual assistance as well as decrease energy expenditure while we're still targeting those four key principles. So a lot of times when, I'm gonna go with PT because I am a PT, but if you're gate training somebody who is pretty dependent, it can almost be more tiring for the therapist before the patient's tired. So you're terminating a gate trial because you're so tired you can't facilitate them anymore. But if you put them in a robotic exoskeleton, if you put them in a bodyweight support harness, you're taking some of the burden off of yourself while still using your hands to manually facilitate that gait pattern. But you're saving your energy, you're saving your body, you're saving your hands that are your livelihood. Um, especially if you're early in your career, you wanna make sure that you get a few good years out of them. So it's so important to really think about embracing the technology while not really forgetting <coughs> that we are still a human profession and you need to operate as such. So when we look at technology and neuroplasticity, we can target each of these four things. So the specificity principle is telling us in order to get better at walking, they have to practice walking. But they're total assist. They're 300 pounds. They're six foot eight. There's limitations with that. So when we can use technology as an adjunct, we can really hone in on that specificity of training. Same thing goes for repetition. In order to get better at walking, you have to take thousands of steps. We can only get thousands of steps in with the use of a treadmill, with the use of a robotic exoskeleton, something that makes it easier for us to target all of this. In order to get better at walking, cardiovascular and neuromuscular systems have to be sufficiently challenged. So again, targeting the intensity. If we can't get their heart rate up because we can only facilitate them for 10 feet at a time, same situation. And then salience, in order to get better at walking, you have to keep them interested and motivated to perform the task at hand. How many people like doing things that are really, really hard for them? No one. You do? That's good. I do too, to an extent. But if you are day after day seeing, I am fatigued after I walk three steps. I can't get out of bed on my own. Why do I want to get out of bed? You can see how, you know, if you're not motivating somebody to really see what their true potential is, you get somebody in a robotic exoskeleton, they're taking 30 steps on day one when they were only taking five steps before. That's going to motivate them for the next day when you then get them to take 600, or 60, 100, 150 steps, and so forth. So now we'll talk a little bit about the tech itself. Um, and we're just going to go over some broad categories and I'll 
kind of talk a little bit about how you see it in acute rehab versus in research because they are kind of very different. So first, robotics are available for both the upper and lower extremities and they really work very well to assist with movement patterning because they're programmed to do that. They are an incredible avenue for mass practice because they only allow proper form. You can fight the robot all you want, but it's only gonna go in the direction that it's programmed to go. It can assist the therapist in appropriately delivering training techniques. Like I said, it's decreasing the burden of care, what I really need to do in order to allow this person to get the number of repetitions that they need. There are tons of exoskeletons on the market. Um, these are only a few, and not all of them are being used in research um, and in clinical uh, applications, but the primary one that I want to talk about today is the ExoGT, which I know Dr. Nolan talked about earlier today, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about it. And for the upper extremity, the primary one that we use in rehab is called the Armeo. So the ExoGT, I know you heard a lot about it earlier. It's a robotic exoskeleton for the purpose of gait retraining. It's not meant for anything else other than gait training. The GT stands for gait training. It is not meant for home use, so this isn't something that you would use with a patient in rehab with the intention of it being something that they could eventually go home with. It has to be operated by a physical therapist, usually more than one. Um, and it has different features that will allow you to either assist gait, facilitate it, resist gait. You can unlock one limb, keep the other limb locked. So for patients with stroke or hemiparetic, you can really assist the impaired leg while allowing the unimpaired leg to kind of just do its thing. So a quick video clip, if it works. So you can see there's a therapist on either side, so we're not being replaced by robots. And you see this sort of beautiful, very normal gait pattern. It's slower than a normal pace, but mechanically, this robot will not let this person step until they've weight shifted appropriately. And that's really one of the main issues that we find in gait training people with stroke, is an inability to weight shift onto the affected side. And then from a therapist's perspective, once you've gotten them to weight shift onto the affected side, do you have enough hands to facilitate everything that they need? If their knee is buckling, if they don't have enough uh, ankle strength to move their foot, um, do they need also assistance to keep their trunk up? The robot kind of takes over all of that. Excuse me, what is the person with the or whatever? Nothing when they're walking, okay. for the most part. So depending on the mode, there are three modes that the ExoGT is capable of. There's first step, which is controlled by whoever has the remote. Each step is controlled by the person with the remote. And then there's pro step and pro step plus. Pro step means that in order for, to get the robot to take a step, they have to have a target anteriorly and laterally, and then it'll take a step. Pro step plus, they only have to hit a lateral target. So depending on what that patient needs will determine what setting we usually pick. Primarily the first time somebody gets up in the robot, we're gonna do it in first step because we wanna be able to show them this robot has you, you don't have to worry, we're gonna say step and you know we're talking to each other, we're not talking to you um, so that they can actually feel what a weight shift feels like. And I actually, I just got trained to use this robot like three weeks ago so I was in it myself and it's the most bizarre thing to get used to, especially when you have normal motor control because you're like, okay, I feel like I want to step, but the robot's not letting me. It's telling me I'm not on this side enough yet to take a step. So it's really an interesting experience when you have an intact nervous system. Um, but what's so great about it is 
the at least when you know when I was in the training last week we took people who overground either couldn't walk at all or were walking maybe five to ten feet and in an hour session they were getting 600 steps 700 steps it was incredible and it was challenging for them but not the same type of challenging where they were feeling exhausted after five feet because it's taking a lot of the work out um, there's advanced settings on the robot where you can unlock a leg, lock a leg, resist a leg. So if you're really targeting strength versus mechanics, you can actually make it harder for them to bring their leg through. It's pretty awesome. The Armeo Spring is an upper extremity robot. I'm gonna show you a little clip of that too. So it fully supports the arm and allows the person to use their available strength and range of motion by kind of taking gravity out of the mix. It allows for task-specific training, and it combines two pieces of technology, both robotics and virtual reality. So she's sitting in front of a screen. Usually it's some sort of game on the screen. Um, so if they're working on grass, you might see like a grocery store scene, and they're being instructed to use their arm in order to reach into a basket of apples, pick up the apple, move the apple, and drop the apple. So there's lots of different applications and lots of different games. And again, it's taking, you know, if myself as the therapist were to be taking a person through that movement, it would be sort of this repetitive, me holding their arm, maybe I'm assisting them more than I think I'm assisting them, all of that kind of stuff. So you really wanna be able to target them being able to use what they have, and then using a robot, you can collect data that's showing how much is the robot doing versus how much is the person doing much more than you could gauge it yourself. The Locomat is a robotic-assisted treadmill. It's my last video clip, I think. Providing highly intensive Ooh. physiological gait rehabilitation to severely that. impaired neurological patients is a huge challenge for health professionals today. This is where Hokoma's innovative solutions can help. The Locomat is the world's leading robotic medical device that provides a highly repetitive physiological gait training, especially to severely impaired patients. The combination of adjustable orthoses, a patented dynamic bodyweight support system, and sensorimotor stimulation ensures the most physiological gait training on the market. Motivating real-time feedback results in active training participation by the patient and increased self-activation of residual functions. Therapists can continuously adapt training parameters to the patient's abilities at every stage of their recovery. The objective documentation of the patient's progress supports communication to the patient, medical experts, and health insurers. The All right. His voice was nicer than mine. Um, so again, we're combining robotics and virtual reality. We're using a system that's pretty customizable. The, there's always going to be, with robotic technology, limits on weight and body measurement capacities. So that is really the biggest challenge when you're using a robotic system. So the exoskeleton, um, you can't weigh more than 220 pounds. Um, there are certain height cutoffs, both on the short end and the tall end. So those are things to consider. The locomat is a little bit more flexible, um, but the robots themselves typically for the lower extremities and for gait, they only get <coughs> so wide. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind. Uh, but the biggest thing with the locomat is providing a physiologic gait pattern. Every single step is the same mechanics every single time. They're getting heel strike, they're getting a perfect swing. Um, 
it accounts for people who have spasticity and tone. It knows that, okay, I'm gonna have to take a slower step because otherwise I'm gonna trigger a spasm. Um, it kind of gets, takes all of that feedback into, control, into account when it's planning the movement. Next, I'll talk a little bit about functional electrical stim, also available for both the upper and the lower extremities, and again, is gonna assist with movement patterning. What's great about it is it provides real-time electric stim during functional task performance. The primary methods uh, that we target for function are gait, cycling, reaching, and grasping. And for a lot of people, because these units are becoming more commercially available, it can be superior to bracing <coughs> because it's constant neuromuscular re-education. So the primary one that we use for gait is the Bioness L300. And it's considered a neuroprosthesis, which essentially means that it can fully substitute the muscles in the lower leg um, by stimulating adequate ankle dorsiflexion and eversion. So it's triggered, the patient wears a, uh, a sensor in their shoe, and every time their heel comes up, the stimulation turns on, helps them swing through and land on their heel first. And then the parameters are pretty adjustable so that if if you ever notice somebody walking who has a weak angle, you hear them coming, they have a foot slap. You can control for that with the L300. You can keep the stim on for longer so that it controls their foot down to the floor and just kind of changes all of their ankle, lower leg mechanics. As I said, it's used for neuromuscular re-education. It's me meant to prevent foot drop. They do now have the L300 Plus, which um, is an extension for the upper leg. You can stimulate either the quads or the hamstrings, depending on what they need. Um, and this is something that is being increasingly covered by insurance companies. So why this is important in rehab is we wanna trial it early. We can actually write letters of medical necessity for our patients who might benefit from using this at home. So we wanna see, can they tolerate the stim? A lot of times with stim in particular, people who have intact sensation can't tolerate a high enough intensity of stimulation in order to get a muscle contraction. So we wanna know that early. If we're planning on, you know, we think on paper this person looks like a great candidate for stim, either just clinically or for home use, but if they can't tolerate a high enough intensity to get a muscle contraction, we need to kind of move on to a different intervention. And then the H200 is also made by Bioness. This is their um, hand and wrist orthosis. It is functional electrical stimulation for hand function. Again, also providing neuromuscular re-education and allows for grasp and release practice. So again, we wanna target multiple repetitions and we can do that really nicely with STEM. Another big one that's gaining popularity is the RTI, which stands for Restorative Therapies, um, Functional Electrical STEM Bicycle. This was initially designed for people with spinal cord injuries. Um, and now it is really translating into both stroke and brain injury rehab as well. Stimulates either the upper or the lower extremities along with the, abdo uh, the abdominals and the back extensors. And it has a mode that you could use separate from the bike called SAGE, which basically allows you to do any sort of exercise or task specific training. You can choose any muscles that you want. So if I wanna work on a reaching task with a person, I might put stim pads on their triceps and their wrist extensors. It's gonna turn on at the same time they can reach for something. It's fully adjustable. Um, the stimulation intensity goes up to like 120 milliamps, which is pretty high. It's higher than the Bioness, so it can be helpful for your weaker patients. Um, and you can target, you can stimulate up to 12 muscle groups at once. Um, when you're using the bike, you'd be doing six on each side at the max. Um, but when you're using Sage, if there were 12 muscle groups 
on one side of the body that I wanted to stimulate, I could. So I've done like a combined sit to stand reaching task where I'll stim the quads, the glutes, the back extensors, triceps, wrist. Um, it's really cool. <laughs> it, the bike portion of it also combines stim and virtual reality. So you see a lot of these technologies are kind of um, overlapping um, and it's fully customizable. This is something that for home use, it's still really, really big in spinal cord injury. It's a lot easier to get an insurance company to approve a bike for somebody with a spinal cord injury versus a stroke or a brain injury. Uh, but we are seeing some approvals happen when before we were seeing none. So because we are using it a lot more in the clinic and showing its efficacy, um, I think that should continue to improve. Virtual reality creates an interactive motivating environment. So we talked before about how important salience is and kind of keeping somebody interested in the task. VR can be classified as either immersive or non-immersive. Um, and there are high tech options and low tech options. So the immersive is more when they're wearing like the um, head array, um, which you see in the picture right there. Some of the examples, we and Xbox Connect are the primary like low tech examples of VR. Um, the Wii obviously has a controller, so the person needs hand function to use the Wii, whereas the Xbox Kinect is all based on motion capture, so they don't need to be holding anything in order to use the Kinect. So that's a really good option as well. Oculus Rift is that head array that you're seeing, so that's really an immersive environment. They fully feel like they are engulfed in whatever environment that they're in versus just seeing something on a screen. And then the Cyber Glove, um, basically is a glove that has sensors in it um, and they see what they're doing with their hand sort of enacted on the screen. Something else that's newer from BioNest is the integrated therapy system. It looks like a large flat screen TV, but it is a touch screen and it has many different programs that are great for multidisciplinary use. I've seen speech therapists use it, I've seen OTs use it, I've seen PTs use it. Um, and you can use it for many, many different things. So if I'm a PT and my primary goal for that day is to get that person to stand for 15 minutes, I might put them in front of this, have them play games on the bits, and suddenly standing for 15 minutes doesn't seem like such a terrible task because I've made it interesting for them. Um, it has three different options that you can purchase. There's the big screen that's height adjustable. You can get a bedside table version and just a mobile version. So in this would actually probably be a pretty good option for acute care hospitals because you can, it's on a rolling bedside table that you could roll over a patient's bed. You could use it at the bedside. People can stand in front of it, sit in front of it, whatever. Mobile phones and fitness trackers. Obviously, this is the, the lowest of the low tech, um, but it's still pretty great. Um, commercially available. Most people, if not all people now own a smartphone and there's new apps that are released daily. And what's kind of interesting is there are apps that were never intended to be used for people with disabilities or any kind of neurologic impairment, but you can really use it quite nicely. Um, how many people have a Fitbit or an Apple Watch? Lots of people. So if you're anywhere near as competitive as I am, do you, are you on your app every day trying to see how you measure up to your friends? You do the work week hustle, try to get more steps than your friends. Um, that can also be really motivating for a patient. Um, so you encourage sort of these low tech fitness trackers that cost anywhere from like 50 to $125. They last a really long time. Um, and you can really set goals for a patient that way. Like, okay, this week I saw your average was 1,000 steps a day. Next week, try for 2,000. Or, you know, incrementally based on the person. Um, but you can really use 
mobile phone technology. This example that I have here is a treadmill walking program um, that provides some VR for the patient while they're on the treadmill. So this isn't something that they would necessarily need to do at home. If they're now discharged from rehab, they're going to a gym, they put their smartphone up on the treadmill, they have this environment that they have to navigate and it gives them scores and things like that. Now some of the more emerging technologies. Um, Non-invasive brain stimulation sounds really, really scary. Um, I promise it's not. Um, but these are things that are primarily only seen in research right now, but they are starting to make the leap into the clinic and hopefully we'll continue to see that happen. Um, the two that I wanna talk about are transcranial magnetic stimulation and transcranial direct current stimulation, which I think sounds even scarier than non-invasive brain stimulation. TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation targets neurons. Um, depending on where you put the magnet, um, you can target neurons in a very specific area of the brain. So you can sort of map where a person's motor cortex is based on where you put the magnet and what happens when you put the magnet over that part of the brain. Use of repetitive TMS is showing a lot of promise in upper limb recovery. And there are two basic models um, of application. There is the ipsilesional excitatory model. So if you see, I don't know, can you see my arrow? No. Is this a pointer? Doesn't work. Okay. I'm just going to. So the, the gray area here is the lesion. And if you put the TMS coil over the lesion, it increases the excitability on that side of the brain. Because typically what happens after a stroke is there's decreased excitability in this motor cortex and increased excitability on the opposite motor cortex. And what that really leads to is decreased motor function on the side that was lesioned, or you know, the opposite side. So if we can work to upregulate the lesioned side, in theory, we equal out both motor cortexes and we see increased motor function. Contralesional inhibitory P uh, TMS looks at putting the coil over the non-lesioned uh, side. I'm gonna come back over here now. Um, because part of the theory is that this interhemispheric inhibition happens after a stroke, that the non-lesioned hemisphere tries to take over for the lesioned hemisphere. So the excitability increases, which then further inhibits the lesioned side. So if we decrease the excitability of the non-lesioned side, in theory, we then start to increase the excitability on the lesioned side and we see motor recovery. And so they use repetitive pulses of TMS to sort of strengthen the connections kind of redirect that uh, hemispheric inhibition and try to really equal out both motor cortexes and allow for increases in motor function. Transcranial direct current stimulation is kind of similar in application, but TMS is using a magnetic field, whereas uh, transcranial direct current stimulation is using an electric current. It's very low level. Most people, when they have it on, don't feel it at all. The most that you typically feel will be a tingling. It's that low level. And what's interesting about it is this gained popularity in video gamers. It is a commercially available, there's research units that you can buy that are many thousands of dollars, but you can buy one for $150. You can put it on your head while you're playing video games, and if you subscribe to the idea, it makes you better at video games. <laughs> um, and what it's basically doing is modulating the current that's going through your brain, and in theory, increasing activity depending on where you put the electrodes. So just like the TMS, it can either inhibit or excite depending on which uh, polarity of electrode you use and where you put it. Um, so typically what most of the studies are doing is putting um, an inhibitory 
electrode on the non-lesion side and a stimulating uh, electrode on the lesion side. What's interesting now and you know, where I think a lot more research is needed is when do we put this on patients? In the acute phase, in the subacute phase, in the chronic phase. And I've read probably 30 to 40 papers on it and there's no consensus at this point for its use. Um, but that's why we need to start using it clinically so we can figure out what works. Um, so when we talk about priming the system, that is another kind of new avenue of rehab that is less explored. And it's looking at what can you do before you do any kind of intervention in the day? What can you do to prep the system in order to perform better when you're doing the intervention? So a lot of the studies have looked at if I do this transcranial direct current stimulation for 20 minutes, then they go to therapy. Is their performance in therapy better? It is. Are the effects lasting? We don't know yet. So immediately after, yes. But we don't know days, weeks down the line, if you stop doing it, do the effects carry over? It can also be used, some of the studies have also looked at keeping it on during an intervention. And again, performance improves while it's on, but we still don't really know about follow-up yet. Um, it has a lot of other uses too. It's been studied um, for improving visuospatial neglect, improving motor performance, improving cognitive performance, and that's in healthy individuals. Um, and then it can also be, they've also been done some trials um, in people with schizophrenia, um, and it actually does modulate some of their uh, neurotransmitters. But again, there's not enough evidence for its efficacy yet for this to really enter everyday clinical practice. Finally, the healthcare professional's role in health promotion and wellness this is something that we don't do the greatest job of at the acute care level and the acute rehab level. And a lot of it is, this is not the place for health and wellness. You're gonna go to outpatient, you're gonna learn all about exercise again, you're gonna finish outpatient, be discharged, be ready to go to a gym. Is that true? Probably not. So there is a scary percentage of the population, um, both healthy and non-healthy, that gets nowhere close to 150 minutes a week of physical activity. And that is the number that we know um, is recommended. Yeah, so you can do that, spread that out however you want, but 150 minutes of physical activity every week is really what's recommended. And I would vouch for the fact that when you add a motor or cognitive deficit to somebody, they're not getting anywhere close to that. So what we need to be doing is early on educating them like okay right now you're tolerating 15 minutes of activity a day that's fine next week we're going to see what it looks like if you tolerate 20 minutes of, of physical activity and really just trying to build it up in the early stages what we're kind of battling at that stage is there's more and more literature coming out now that's looking at it's actually bad to do too intensive of exercise in acute stroke so finding that optimal time to begin Maybe you're just starting with education, and that's totally fine as well. But really making it clear to people, particularly people who have had a stroke, realizing that, yes, a stroke is a brain problem, but it's really a cardiovascular problem at the root of it. So it's a brain problem that caused problems with your mobility, but at the root of it, you may have high blood pressure, you may have high cholesterol, you may have any number of things that caused your stroke. Those causes are not going to go away unless you exercise safely. Um, so we can consider within you know, acute rehab incorporating commercially available pieces of technology 
recommending that on top of this home exercise program that I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna offer you three different fitness trackers. Go home and get one of those. Um, start tracking your steps every day. See if you can set a goal for yourself and sort of increase that goal steadily as you're getting better. Bring it to outpatient therapy with you. Let them know, hey, this is what I'm doing. My primary goal is to walk a thousand steps this week. How many can we get in in this one hour therapy session? Um, what we know is that if we help people improve their perception of wellness, they're much more susceptible to adherence to exercise um, and they're a lot more willing to participate. So we can use technology across the spectrum in so many different ways. It does not have to be high tech at all. Um, even you know some of the cell phones, if you keep it in your pocket, it'll track your steps. Um, so it's something, you know, not an extra piece of equipment that you have to buy. It's not necessarily as accurate, um, but it does give you a pretty good idea. For more information about Kessler Foundation and its researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That is K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.